you're always also witnessing quite extraordinary uh, biodiversity, animals and plants and microbes doing wonderful things and such a variety of them and, and such beauty that that in itself, I found particularly inspiring. Emma Johnson is one of the most passionate science communicators in Australia. A keen marine scientist, she was born to two parents who were scientists and has been a keen sailor from a young age. Emma serves as the Deputy Vice-Chancellor Research at the University of Sydney and has uh, over 100 publications to her name, uh, as well as being appointed an Officer of the Order of Australia. Uh, she is somebody who is interested, articulate and curious about our oceans and our ro their role in our lives. Emma, thanks so much for taking the time to join me on the Good Life podcast today. Thanks, Andrew. It's my pleasure. So let's start off with your parents and how they sparked your curiosity in science. Uh, what did your parents do? So, yeah, both my parents studied science and my father was an applied mathematician. So he wrote some of the first computer programs for the first computers, which was always fun. It did mean that we had some quite cutting edge technology or we had Pac-Man before not many other kids had Pac-Man in the house. <laughs> um, so um, that was always fun. But he was primarily an applied scientist. He worked a lot with the paper industry and, and in Australia, the paper industry at the time was going fairly well. So a lot of paper science, but also optimization and cutting stock problems. So he's a professor in, in mathematics um, and also a dean of engineering at some points during his career. My mother was an aspiring scientist. She did her master's in chemistry, particularly in the colours of dyes and things like that. And oh. she did work for a time as, as a chemist and also in hospitals as a pathologist. But in the 70s, when she was having the three children, and so I had my older brother, myself, and my younger brother, by the time the youngest brother came along, mum decided that she liked to work part-time, but the system wouldn't let her work part-time. And it was, wasn't a very flexible system at that time. And we hadn't really learned a lot of the lessons about how do we keep these amazing women in the workforce. Um, so she left that the workforce there. And then she retrained uh, as, when we were a little bit older as an artist. Uh, a fine artist and she did a degree in Japanese and just continuous learning so that's where her career took her. You had quite an international upbringing I understand so how did uh, where did you travel to and how did that shape your view of the world? Yes we were very fortunate now because my father was an academic they have a thing called study leave which is still uh, available to most academics although it's increasingly difficult to achieve because often the whole family needs to move and that's what we did. So we lived for um, a bit more than a year in England and I went to a British primary school in London and I've got to say the, the London winters for a primary school kid when you, you're turning up in the dark and you're leaving in the dark are not much fun. Um, <laughs> I also picked up a very, you know, uh, solid London accent, which when I got back to Australia, the kids thought was very posh and it was anything but posh. Um, I also <laughs> lived, I know it was quite funny, I lived for uh, with six months in France and went to kindergarten there and also to a little bit of primary school there. And of course, we were just put into the local um, schools 
So that was a French exposure for six months and I you know, picked up a lot that way. And then finally, um, we did a year in Japan. And again, I went to Japanese primary school um, and I myself and my younger brother were the only two foreigners in the entire school. Uh, so Japan was um, relatively closed at that point in time. This was about 1986 and it was just fascinating. The first three months, I felt like I had a paper bag over my head and time has never gone so slow. I can remember, I can distinctly recall watching the second hand on the clock in the classroom go around. Um, so that's how slow time was going. But as as I, uh, you know, heard more and learned more and listened more and practiced, suddenly the world opened up and I started to understand what my fellow kids were, were saying to me, what the, what the games in the schoolyard were about, what the classes were about. And at that point in time, I couldn't really speak very much. And it was at about the six-month point that the language came to me as an active vocabulary. And so I think, you know, that combination of experiences growing up particularly being exposed to situations where you can't speak the language and you you need to learn quickly. I think it stretches the brain. I think it helps you build really important neural pathways of language. But even more importantly, I feel like I learned how to listen because it was my friends who took the time and had the patience to listen to me as I developed this broken language in French and Japanese. And you know, who I really appreciated. And I started to understand how language is born. And so when I went to high school, I had a lot of friends who were, you know, first generation Australians and had English as a second language. And I felt like I could communicate with them a bit better than everyone who hadn't had that really difficult experience. And I, I don't know what it is. It's something core to language. It's something about watching people's expressions. Anyway, I think it helped me become a better communicator. I wonder too whether that experience of being an outsider in uh, a Japanese school made you more attuned to the outsiders when you came back to an Australian school. I, I mean, I certainly found after three years of uh, living in Indonesia and, and part of that attending an Indonesian primary school that I sort of gravitated towards the outsider kids and the uh, Australian primary school I returned to. I, I definitely think that was the case. I think you you gravitate to them, but you also have more empathy um, and mm. you can understand and appreciate their, their enormous value um, in a way that if you were kind of just taking the easy path, you might just stick with your own clique. Were you, did you know at this stage that you were going to be a scientist? Oh, that's a really interesting question. So, no, I, you know, in primary school, like many primary school kids but possibly more girls and boys I wanted to be a primary school teacher <laughs> and um, you know they're the people that you look up to and that you really appreciate and then in high school I would like to have been a first a doctor in, and then a psychologist and then a combination of the two in the form of a psychiatrist and then uh, a science journalist so I never landed on actual scientists which is interesting I fell into science and there are signals all the way through my childhood that I would probably fall into science, but I didn't, um, I didn't really, I wasn't conscious of them. So, for example, in Japan, one of the most amazing things about primary school is, is the science classes, which were well ahead of any science classes that were being taught in Australia. You were actually, you know, as young as 10 or 11, running really amazing scientific practical classes, including 
mixing chemicals and lighting Bunsen burners and all the sorts of things that we wouldn't expect to do until high school in Australia, you were doing in primary school. And it was so much fun. And because I didn't have the language, but I could understand equations, mathematics was also open to me. And they were doing mathematics in grade five primary school that I didn't do again until year eight when I was back in Australia. So, you know, and I loved those subjects. I love, I've always loved understanding more about how the world works. I've always asked a lot of questions and it's very satisfying to me to get an evidence-based logical answer to how the world works. And that includes diving really deep into how atoms function and how mathematical equations work. And so, so all of those signs were there, but I have also always been very interested in people and in communication and also particularly interested in supporting a better way of working in our environment and protecting our environment and our biodiversity. And so I entered university thinking I would be a science journalist to help science communication move along. I wanted to do an undergraduate degree that was very broad. So I did, I continued with physics, maths, chemistry and biology. And then finally, I just, I kind of fell out of love with the idea of being a journalist and, and kind of wandered around university going, what am I going to do? I don't have any motivation. I've never had this lack of, you know, career plan before. So I decided that I would just follow my passions, the subjects that I thought were really fascinating, the things that I could do. And I majored in ecology, including marine ecology, and also in philosophy of science, and then followed one of the best academic teachers I've ever had into environmental marine ecology. And do your, your family sort of had uh, connections with the water? I understand you're in uh, growing up in Williamstown, which is uh, the, the oceans all around you there. And uh, uh, you were a pretty keen sailor as a, uh, as, as, a, as a youth, I understand. Yeah, I loved it. I still do. So I was um, sixth, sixth generation Australian um, and all of those generations lived in Williamstown. Uh, so I'm the first to escape Williamstown, not that you want to. It's a beautiful little peninsula town uh, that is part of Melbourne across the Westgate Bridge, and it's literally surrounded by water. So we were 500 metres from Williamstown Beach, which is one of the bay beaches, mm. and then across directly across the peninsula are all the sailing clubs. So my parents sailed a small 23-foot yacht. My mum was the skipper, which was very unusual in the 70s as well. And growing up, we learned <laughs> how to sail. Yeah, we did. We did the mirrors first um, and lots of sailing camps. And then my brother and I graduated into the kitty cats, which are catamarans, which are absolutely so much fun. So you, you've got a harness on, you're throwing yourself out the side of the boat to kind of weigh it down. You're throwing yourself across and, and you're having an intense strategic competition to win the race out there on the water. It's one of the most fantastic places to be. And you've got that joy of uh, having the one hull lift out of the uh, of the ocean as you're going fast, which I imagine is a, is a great adrenaline boost. Oh, it, it's it's very exciting, especially when the winds in Port Phillip Bay can get very strong very quickly. So I think the most we've been out in was about 50 knots, which was almost well, it was pretty much intolerable. <laughs> um, so with plenty of uh, plenty of dunkings and capsizings and and um, injuries, but on the whole, a great deal of fun. And so, uh, what, 50 knots is is nearly 100 kilometres an hour, isn't it? Yeah, you really don't that want to be That is a serious wind. Yeah, even the waves are flattened at that wind. Um, and so, <laughs> yeah, essentially you try and get all your sails down and point directly into the wind so that you can make yourself the smallest possible target for any 
any rush of wind at that point. But yes, we did have some quite um, exciting adventures on boats. It's interesting to me to, to look at your your bro brother's trajectories too. I mean, your uh, uh, older brother Ben, who passed away, was a was a mathematician. Um, your younger brother Sam is uh, uh, a designer. Uh, you can see sort of imprints of your parents' careers in uh, in each of the three of you. Um, how did they? nurture your uh, your your interests i mean did it sounds like they weren't the kinds of parents who were trying to, to live vicariously through their kids no they definitely didn't um push us in particular directions um what they did was encourage our learning very strongly supportive of learning um and that was a, a very high value of the family not just learning at school but continuous learning and inside and outside the classroom um, they, as you can see from my brothers and also from my parents, they the very strong um, love of music, uh, of the outdoors and of science and of art. So it's a very mixed um, background that I had. And so you had really, you really had opportunities to do whatever you like. I, I was a music scholarship at high school and did um, two musics all the way up to end of high school in the orchestra and the concert band and everything. And, and actually secretly, I wanted to be an artist as well, but I couldn't squeeze it in. So I think all of us have this kind of love of love of everything, <laughs> science and art and nature. And the parents were incredibly supportive of us finding a path through that. My parents did want me to, you know, they were wondering why I hadn't put doctor or lawyer on my list of, you know, degrees to do at the university. Um, but I said I was insistent that I didn't want to do those. I just wanted to do a science degree, and they they were supportive. I think the other thing that they did uh, was honestly try and answer questions. You know, really, and if they didn't know what the answer was, you know, help research what that answer might be and understand it. So they were very, very accommodating and interactive and engaging in that respect. Funnily enough, they um they weren't big fans of television, so I did I do feel like <laughs> if anything, don't ask me any kind of really general questions about sport or film. <laughs> like I'm, I'm not very uh, familiar with that because I grew up with half an hour of ABC television a day maximum, and that and the three kids had to fight over what that half an hour was about. <laughs> yeah, that was the rule in our household as well. So uh, you know, I yeah. can tell you all tell you all about. Uh, Doctor Who, which I watched for a couple of years, or the goodies. Yes. Um, yeah. But uh, the we also had a thing called the television room, which is the idea that my parents had that the TV should not dominate the lounge room. So if you wanted to mm. watch TV for half an hour, you went into the TV room, did that, and then came back out to join the household. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very, very similar. I think the only thing was, as we got a bit older, we did start watching the SBS News uh, in the evening. And I think that really opened my eyes to... Um, the dramas of the world, the injustices, um, the, the terrible problems that were happening across the world. And we would talk about those issues at the family dinner table as the news kind of rolled out. So that was a very, also a very interesting and engaging way to develop an understanding of the world. And you were uh, at Melbourne University, you were not only studying a lot of science, but also sort of quite involved in political act activism or in the sense of being president of the uh, uh, Student Association Union and president mm -hmm. of the East mm -hmm. Timor Students Association. Uh, what got you engaged in those, those things? Yeah, that's interesting. So I have always had a very strong sense of um, social justice 
very passionate about that and environmental justice as well. So I was um, from the word go at the beginning of my degree and I recommend this for anyone who's doing a degree is to join multiple clubs um, and find out, join lots and then find out which ones you really like and you can you can drop out of the ones that are, are not your passion anymore. But you get to meet people and you also get to develop all of these additional skills that are potentially not in your coursework. And one of the groups I joined was just a simple um, tree planting environment group. And I got to meet all of the, well, a whole lot of the people that were active in environmental advocacy um, and in, you know, running the food co-op and all that sort of stuff. And it was through that group that I under, started to understand that there was such a thing as student politics. I really didn't have a political background. I never wanted to be a politician myself. Sorry, Andrew. But um, never... <laughs> if everyone wanted to be politicians, I'm sure I'd be uh, uh, nudged, out, nudged out of a job with more talented people. I'm just lucky that uh, <laughs> it's a relative, relatively niche occupation. Well, you've got no competition from me. Um, so, yeah, so, but I did um, want to make a difference for people and I was very committed to a, um, uh, a lot of major issues at the time, in particular um, support for uh, diversity and equity, LGBTQI plus community, social welfare for students, um, environmental sustainability of our projects and practices, and just... Uh, the, the important role that students play in shaping their own education, um, so being a voice at the table. So I, I was pre-selected in a non-aligned uh, left group called Left Focus, which spanned everything um, uh, and also had some of the political parties involved, but I was non-aligned and, um, and I was elected to president. Now, president of the student union at Melbourne Uni at the time and probably still today is a full-time job for the year. So you actually you are running a very large lot of student services with the support of the professional staff, of course, um, but you're also sitting as a representative on the university council and the academic board, and you're you know, chairing the student council. And I found that to be incredibly rewarding. Um, we made a lot of really important changes that year that have, that have been instrumental in helping support a more diverse student community at the university. What uh, caused you to, uh, to to focus on marine ecology? And uh, you mentioned, did you mention before that there was a particular professor who uh, who was instrumental in that path? Yeah, that's right. So I had a wonderful professor called Professor Nick Keogh, who's still a professor at the University of Melbourne, who um, ran, ran a couple of courses. First of all, there were a great deal of marine ecology lecturers and, and there was invertebrate biology and it all contributed to me being, you know, kind of reinforcing what was something that I'd grown up with. I, I was swimming when I was very small. I was snorkeling around Williamstown and I was sailing and like, trying to surf, <laughs> which I didn't do very well. Anyway, uh, one of the courses that I found really interesting, besides the general ecology, which I found fascinating, and the microbiology also found fascinating, but one of them was an environmental impact uh, study course. Can't even remember the name of the actual program, but essentially it taught you around how environmental impact assessments were done, um, and it was around the statistics of that and the rigor of that and understanding it and what role that played in allowing for more sensitive developments to take place or for developments you know, to be approved in the first place. And we did a really engaging, proactive project of assessing uh, an impact assessment that had already been done and kind of critiquing it and presenting it. And that, that's when I just suddenly realized, well, actually, 
I'm very passionate about environments. I'm very passionate about science. And I would like to combine the two and help understand the world better so that we can protect it better. And that was when kind of I suddenly went, oh, maybe I should do honours. And maybe I should do, after that, maybe I should do a PhD. I was never particularly confident that I would be becoming an academic or anything. I just found that following my passion into that space and understanding the world in a way that might allow us to manage it better, in particular at that point in time I was focused on pollution uh, research, would, would be a really constructive thing to do and it gave me great value. What made Mick Keogh a good supervisor? Yeah, I think... From, a, from an undergraduate lecturing perspective, he was very engaging. He got us engaged in teaching ourselves and in learning, uh, but also he was very good mathematically and statistically. So he taught experimental design and statistics, and that appealed to me in, in the way in which you could have a rigorous method, and that's what science is. It's you know a set of rigorous methods for interrogating the world and for building a more reliable understanding of that world. So it's it's quite um you know it's complicated and it's detailed but it made sense to me it's logical um and I found that incredibly satisfying so he had that combination of interest in the environment and understanding of pollution interest in theory he would probably call himself only a marine ecologist not an environmental scientist so he, he had that deep theory and then on top of that that layer of statistical rigor which I found particularly interesting when you talk about the statistical analysis, was most of your work uh, done hunched over a computer or were there uh, parts of your research that required you to put on a wetsuit and go diving? Yeah, it was, it was wonderful to have a combination of both, actually. And I still find that that, um, that image of scientists that we have, that we're either in the lab all the time or on the computer all the time, well, it's true to a certain extent. But if you, if you choose a scientific field, that has an environmental component, then you are also likely to be, you know, at Bunnings trying to get cable ties and a bit of equipment and ropes, but you're also likely to be out in the fields, um, under the water or in the forest. And it's a combination of activities that is very satisfying. You don't ever get bored. How have you picked your research topics? Good question. I was particularly... In interested in pollution impacts in marine ecosystems to begin with. Um, and what's happened is my research program has evolved to cover most of the ways in which humans interact with marine ecosystems and then thinking about and, and studying how we might reduce our impacts and support biodiversity to a greater extent. Pollution became the interaction between pollution and invasive species. So I hypothesised that the many, many introduced species that have traveled to Australia on ships, on the hulls of ships and in ballast water, might actually be getting an advantage because they were environmentally very tolerant to contaminants and that our ports and harbors were systematically contaminated with those same contaminants. And so uh, over about a 10 year period, I developed with an amazing group of students and postdocs and collaborators and chemists you know, with, with colleagues from multiple universities, from government agencies and from the CSIRO, we worked together and built a body of evidence that demonstrated quite clearly that um, pollution and biological invasion were intertwined in our marine ecosystems. And really that got me thinking about multiple stresses. It's, you know, it's nice to say I'm a pollution researcher, but not only is there never only one contaminant type, you know, it's always a multitude of contaminants in these ecosystems that have been released 
but it's also not just contamination. And increasingly we see, for example, across the globe, the effects of climate change in not only changing the average temperature of our oceans and our lands, but changing many other environmental extremes such as you know, rainfall and storm energy and um, sea level rise and ocean acidity, all of these changes at once being layered on top of what is a historical legacy of impact from, from impacts that we're probably more familiar with historically, such as uh, you know, building of ports and harbours, contamination of the waters and the sediments within those systems, um, the removal of our sea fish beds and our seagrasses and our mangroves and our salt marshes. So the combination of stresses is really what we need to manage and reduce and understand if we are to get successful restoration and adaptation. And when you did the uh, final lecture for me recently, you spoke about uh, the State of Environment Report 2021, which you were the uh, lead author on. Uh, tell us about some of the findings out of that, around, uh, particularly around threatened species and, and the impact of climate change. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. So the State of Environment Report is possibly a culmination of all of my career working on different um, human impacts in marine ecosystems, but then it expanded uh, my understanding to an even greater extent because, um, so I was one of three chief authors, um, Ian Cresswell and Terry Janke being my co-chief authors. And then we were a team of 34 authors and the State of Environment Report, which is an independent report commissioned by the government, uh, is written, has been written every five years, and it covers the state of every environment in Australia, so our lands and our waters and our Antarctic ecosystems and the biodiversity more generally. It also describes the state of the climate, and for the first time in this report, we, we introduced an entirely new chapter on climate extremes, so extreme events. And that's because between 2016, when the last State of Environment report came out, and 2021, when this one was, was finished, we had a situation where we went from predicting climate change would be impacting soon to literally cataloguing uh, a litany of climate extreme events from fires to, to uh, flout, um, floods and droughts and marine heat waves and land heat waves and the driest year on record and the largest, most synchronous bushfires, et cetera. Across the whole of Australia, there wasn't really a centimetre that wasn't impacted by an extreme event of some form during those five years. And so it was just extraordinary to be involved in this report. It was quite depressing, uh, and but very important that, that those impacts be documented and that we, we move forward to understand that they will increase, and many of these extreme events will increase in their frequency and in their intensity. Um, they will also some of them will become more variable in ways that we haven't yet been able to predict with our climate models, but that we will have to cope with and that our biodiversity, which is already um, in a dire strait, will you know, not really be able to adapt to in that the extreme events are happening at a, at a greater frequency than the species would have evolved with them. So Australia has got a long history of droughts and floods, and et cetera, but nowhere near you know, the rate or the frequency of, of disturbances that we're facing going into the future. And so your evolutionary capacity to adapt is then challenged by that frequency. So 
I'm curious as to how you manage uh, a lot of your projects because uh, you've got a, a team of people uh, in your capacity as uh, uh, Deputy Vice Chancellor of Research at Sydney University. Uh, you've you obviously would have had the team of people around the State of Environment report. Uh, you've got a research team looking into the environmental health of Antarctica. Well, what tips do you have for people who are part of or managing large teams? Uh, you must have you, you you must have insights on this score. Yeah, look, I think that there's no way I would have um, that I could do all of the things that I apparently do um, without amazing teams that I've worked with. And I, my sense is that environmental science, marine science in particular, it cannot be done alone. But I think it's true of most activities on earth that they cannot be done alone. And that the sooner that you are able to communicate well with your fellow team members, acknowledge their talents and skills, build complementary teams, um, be open to recognition of the contributions and not try and kind of steal the limelight. It's um, There's a whole suite of techniques that actually make for a happy collaboration. And happy collaborations are, are the most productive. They're also, as we know increasingly, that it's the diverse teams, it's the diverse perspectives that come in that actually help you solve problems more quickly because you're bringing in those other lenses. So I think my, my hot tips really are delegate, empower, you know, collaborate, use democratic principles where you can to, to ensure that everyone is feeling valued as part of those teams and that everyone can build their career, they've got new opportunities, they can go out into the world feeling a stronger person having been involved with a project in your group. How do you use meetings effectively? Well, that's a good question. Our own, um, I think, again, some of the principles are engagement. So really trying to ensure that everyone has a voice in those meetings and that the perspectives, and that can be quite a structured process, you know, simple things like around Robin can actually elicit ideas and perspectives from people who might otherwise feel really shy and not be willing to speak up within a group. I think meetings increasingly, as you get into the executive level of universities, and there's a lot of meetings, um, they can also benefit from being quite highly structured. So with discussion papers that are distributed well in advance so that people can have a think and have a read and talk to their teams and bring diverse perspectives to those meetings. Um, again, structured conversations that are respectful um, and that incorporate diverse perspectives. And then finally, really clear action plans and decision points that have been made from those meetings. And that, that way, at the next meeting, you can reflect on what you were planning to do. You can ensure that you're making progress towards particular objectives. You talked before about your uh, mother's career in science being cut short because science in the 1970s didn't give her a path to work part-time. Uh, what are the sorts of things that we need to do now to uh, attract and retain more women into science? Yeah, look, a lot of similar things. I mean, we're getting better. That's the good thing. Um, I guess the situation is that First of all, we want to encourage everybody, not just women, to be able to be an active part of their families. And I think encouraging everybody to be able to take parental care 
as opposed to what we used to do, which was just call it maternity leave, um, where it was just only for the woman. I think encouraging parental care and active participation of all members of families in family decision-making and family care is, is a mechanism that will actually allow women to be more engaged in the workforce. And I think childcare, affordable, accessible childcare is a big part of that in the modern day society. I think in particular in science, we have a suite of additional cultural obstacles to get across, uh, to get over. So in particular, we have a conditioning in primary school and into high school where, you know, girls do the arts and boys do the maths. And really that's incredibly constraining and not really based on any evidence whatsoever. It's just a cultural norm. And it's not even a cultural norm that's global. You know, it's just particularly in some societies. And I think role models help um, to break that that cultural norm but I also think really great teachers who push back against that norm and say look there is no evidence for it you can do maths and encourage um, people to remain engaged I think they're all very important and in the university sector we we have a situation in which people's research careers are reliant on productivity from previous years so it's really you have to put in a competitive grant. Some of the grant success rates are very low. And so you have to show that you have been very active and very ideas driven and that you have produced amazing research and that research has had impact. Now, that can be done part-time, but it's more difficult to assess. And so I think what we've got better at over the last few years, but we still have a way to go, is looking at track record relative to the opportunity someone has had to be engaged in the sciences or in research more generally. And if we can get more fair and just ways of assessing what we call merit, uh, then I think we will go a long way to increasing the diversity of our academic profile. How have you gone about uh, combining work and family? You've got uh, two, ch two children. Uh, how have you uh, managed to, uh, to, to integrate being a your, your, your life as a parent and your life as a researcher? Yeah, it's. I think my kids have accepted that I am a very active worker as well as a very active parent, <laughs> um, and that's an important consideration. They weren't expecting me to stay home. Uh, I did utilise childcare, and I also, you know, have a very constructive, positive partner who engages in the parenting and the home household activities, in the early days, we were kind of stuck in a bit of a rut because the maternity leave was only available to me and not my partner. But early on, we went on a sabbatical as a family uh, when my daughter was only two and a half years old. And my partner actually stopped his work and just had six months focused on her and some study. And they really bonded. And I think from that point on, he really understood how important it was to find time um, to be really actively engaged in parenting. And from that point on, I think we had a much um, more balanced approach to parenting. I think also, um, you know, speaking about your work and making, and making it a normal part of the family conversation and as much as speaking about someone's studies at school or, you know, someone's social life, making that a normal part of, of everyday activity within a family really removes a lot of the barriers to work. It's not it's not an either-or situation. Everybody in the family is engaged in what you're doing and, and can be excited about, you know, your next field trip 
to Antarctica or to the Great Barrier Reef, for example, and to really be a part of it and to learn from it. So Emma, I want to wrap up with a couple of questions that I ask all my interviewees. So what advice would you give to your teenage self? Uh, well, you know, teenagers aren't very good at taking advice. I know because I have two teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I probably would say to, to really enjoy the, the slower pace of life because as a teenager myself, I sometimes felt quite frustrated at how slow time was moving and how little was happening. But life speeds up and speeds up really quickly and then all of a sudden you you kind of, uh, wishing that it would slow down again. So enjoy the slower pace, I think would be my main bit of advice. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Well, when I was in primary school, I was shockingly scared that there would be a nuclear holocaust. It was part of the time, you know, it was the Cold War and uh, weapons were proliferating and um, there wasn't good relationships between the US and the USSR. And, you know, I would like to think that I no longer believe that there will be a nuclear holocaust, but I also feel that what's happening in Ukraine at the moment, the ter terrible invasion of Ukraine um, and the warmongering that's going on between um, certain countries at the moment, the geopolitical divide, the social um, breakdown in many societies and the increasing divisions between people I feel like that doesn't put us in a good place either. Now, maybe it's not going to be a nuclear war, but there are there is a lot of destruction going on at the moment across the globe, and I really feel like we need to do more in that place to prevent war, um, to build connections between people. And I think actually research and development is a really important way of doing that because a lot of our global challenges, like climate change, can only be solved if all of the academics and researchers across the globe from multiple disciplines are working together on these challenges to understand climate-ocean interactions, for example, to understand geopolitical divides and try and remove them as people need to move in response to, to climate disasters. So I remain optimistic. Um, I'm no longer quite the pessimist about the... about Sorry, not the Holocaust. I'm talking... I'm, I meant the, um, what do you call it when there's a great big nuclear war? Uh, well, nuclear holocaust, yeah. Yeah, it is nuclear holocaust, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that kind of terrible situation I'm no longer thinking will happen all at once, but I do think there is a remarkable climate crisis barreling towards us and we need to be working together to mitigate and adapt in response to that. When are you most happy? So I think there are two situations in which I'm most happy. One is when I am sitting on the couch with my dogs and listening to my children practice their piano. <laughs> That's a cup of tea. That is just a really lovely domestic situation where I feel extremely content and fortunate. Um, the, other, the other situation is when I'm anywhere near the water. So on the water, on the beach, near the water, on a coastal cliff, um, just looking at the ocean, it gives me immense pleasure and um, it's, it's a very calming thing for me to do. What's the most important thing you do to stay physically and mentally healthy? Well, that's very much related to the former. So um, I walk yep. every day along the coast um, and I let my my mind and my eyes relax as I look towards the horizon. Uh, and I often find that after about 
you know, 15 to 20 minutes, any worries that I've had previously are suddenly becoming um, less important and or I've got solutions. Uh, so I think it's a very good meditative approach to problem solving. Uh, but also just, you know, that's a bit of exercise as well. I also swim. Um, I would love to get back into sailing and I've promised myself that when the kids um, have finished high school, I'm going to get back into sailing. Those daily walks, are they on your own or do you go with others? I mean, it depends, but I definitely have the dogs with me. <laughs> so they wouldn't let me leave the house without them. Uh, and do you, uh, do you listen to um, podcasts or audio books or it's important just to, to have silence there? You know, it's actually the silence and listening to the ocean that I find um, better for me. So um, the, the sound and the smell of the ocean is really a big part of those walks. And finally, Emma, uh, what person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Look, I think it is, um, so close to home, I think it's my parents, you know, they they worked really, really hard. They, you know, they were both first in family to go to university. In fact, first in family to finish high school. Um, they believed in equality of opportunity, I think as a part of the consequence of, of their trajectory and their, their love um, for learning. They loved their friends, they traveled really widely and they traveled without prejudice through amazing countries. And they opened their house to international friends and acquaintances. We always had, we had visitors. And they really were not afraid of a very respectful argument, you know, an evidence-based argument that would really engage in honest communication. So I think they um, are amazing role models to me. I mean, if you were to take it to someone who was kind of abstracted, I really admire Marie Curie, who was um, mm, mm. A, Pol a Polish migrant. You know, she faced discrimination as a Pole in France, uh, but also as a woman in science. Uh, she was really still committed to her understanding the world and her research. She also brought up two wonderful children who became scientists themselves. She also worked, you know, right at the forefront of applying that science. She was uh, one of the first people to establish an X-ray um, set up on, on the war fields of France and, you know, apply those learnings to help people who'd been injured in that war. And so I think she's a remarkable Two person. Nobel Prizes. Just Two remarkable. Nobel Prizes and super entrepreneurial. You know, she went round fundraising for her own research with a, you know, a piece of radioactive material in her pocket to show everybody. So there is a reason why she, um, she died a terrible death, but... She is just such an amazing woman and so bright and so passionate. Emma Johnson, uh, marine ecologist, university leader and ocean lover, thank you very much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Thanks, Andrew. There were very interesting questions that made me reflect on my life, so it was a, a wonderful opportunity. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. Andrew Lee in conversation. We appreciate getting feedback on the podcast, so please leave us a rating or tell a friend about the show. We'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.